Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change power and success in the world. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. But without victory there is no survival. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. If liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. Is a quote from the English writer Eric Arthur Blair, or better known as George Orwell. I thought this quote is appropriate for our guest today. Someone with a wealth of experience in both the public and private sectors, local and international markets, who challenges us to rise above our differences and engage in thoughtful, constructive and open debate as we move forward as a society. Our guest is John Fraser, Chairman of AMP Capital Holdings Limited and Director of Judo Bank, AMP Limited, The Future Fund and Advance. He also served as the Secretary to the Australian Treasury and was Chairman and CEO of UBS Global Asset Management. John was previously a member of the Board of the Reserve Bank of Australia and the Australian Council of Financial Regulators, as well as being Chair of the G20 Global Infrastructure Hub and the Victorian Funds Management Corporation. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite, world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners, the number one research-led executive search and board advisory firm. In this insightful discussion, John shares with us his unique perspective on the path to recovery as we deal with the economic and social consequences of the pandemic and the incoming shifts in the global markets. We gain a rare glimpse into the corridors of power, spanning from Canberra to Washington, D.C., London to the Middle East, public servants to bankers, presidents to prime ministers. So sit back and enjoy Open for Debate. John, welcome to the show. A pleasure. John, what made you start a career in the public sector? Well, it's... uh it was by an accident, not by design. Um, I had wonderful, wonderful parents, but we didn't have money. Uh, I grew up in Armidale before it became a very trendy suburb. Outdoor toilet. My father converted the back veranda, and that's where I slept with the dog and the cat. And uh, I had three sisters. So I used to have to get up in the middle of the night to escort them to the outdoor toilet. Right, okay. And... Um, then I went to Melbourne High, which was very, very lucky, very great school. Scholarship? No, but you had it was competitive. It was a bit like Sydney Boys High here in uh, Sydney. And uh, I was recovering uh, from a hangover one Saturday morning, getting ready to play rugby that afternoon, and the old man came in and he said, uh, <laughs> oh, you got an interview with Treasury? And I said, what do you mean? He said, I oh, don't worry, there's an interview next uh, Thursday. And it turned out he had written an application for me to secure a cadetship, which would pay you a salary to attend third and fourth year at Monash. 
And uh, actually, when I became Secretary of the Treasury, I looked through the files and I found my old man's application, which he forged. And which I he forged? Oh, he forged. I didn't sign it. He wrote it. <laughs> and um, Dad always said, you know, coming out of the war, you know, get yourself a job in the public service, job for life, yeah, security. home and hosed. And uh, sadly, a lot of people joined the public service for that reason. And I did the interviews, very competitive interviews. The first flight I ever had flew me up to Canberra in a Fokker and uh, 10 people lined up. They went one question, 10 up, and then one question, 10 down, and uh, I did all right. And so I, I went from being one of the poorer students at Monash to having a few bob in my back pocket. So my late father, who was, unlike me, a really great guy, um, did me a huge favour, did me a huge favour, and that's how I got in. Went up to Treasury, uh, worked in the vacation between third and fourth year, yep. and um, then stayed there for till 1993. And why did you stay there? Oh, it was a great atmosphere. Um, it ruined my rugby career because uh, we all drank too much. Uh, Friday nights were a great time, great bonding sessions. Uh, great fan of John Stone. He was then the Deputy Secretary. Yep. And um, I was always a hopeless rugby player enthusiastic but uh, drinking on a Friday night was a great camaraderie and uh, John it was it was almost the first hour you were sensible you could make or break your career talking about sensible things yep but after an hour he didn't do it but he almost figuratively pointed to his watch and said ladies and gentlemen that's it it's fun time now in Canberra in Canberra I know I know <laughs> but this is the old um, Canberra pub which is now the Hyatt now oh yeah okay yep and uh, John was a great guy. I remember him one night, well before DUI, uh, pointing to someone and saying, how are you getting home? And he's, the bloke said, I'm going to drive. And he said, rubbish. He said, give me your keys. His, I think it was 20 bucks then. He said, your keys will be at the front desk of Treasury at 10 a.m. tomorrow. He really cared for his staff. Yeah. But by God, we did drink. And uh, I slipped down the grades at to Royals Rugby Club. <laughs> And uh, so I played a lot of games of rugby, but uh, my career rose to the heights of mediocrity on two occasions. And uh, I always put it down to the fact that those Friday nights were fantastic. But I wouldn't trade the Friday nights. They were a great education. It taught you to um, argue, uh, only speak up when you had something that you were able to defend. So um, that's why I went to the public service. Uh, it was a good time. I mean, during the week. There was great camaraderie there, uh, a lot of fun. Uh, that's what I noticed when I came back. There wasn't the sense of fun and devilment in the corridors that we had in the uh, certainly the 70s and the 80s, although I was away for um, five years in D.C. That might be also a sort of a, a snapshot of the whole uh, sort of business community these days, isn't it, John? No, is that, is that, you know, do we still have those drinking sessions that we used to have? Well, we certainly had them when I was in London. I went, I'm jumping ahead of myself, but I went to London as uh, global chairman and CEO of uh, UBS's asset management business. Mm. And uh, they were a pretty rough and tumble group I had. So uh, the boys in Chicago and girls in New York, Tokyo even, certainly in London, uh, there was a lot of camaraderie there. But... Um, Probably less so now. People, you know, it's politically correct. People are very careful. Yeah. Um, I got to the point in London where uh, I had wonderful secretaries. I had two women who were more mature. They wouldn't mind me saying that. 
and uh, they'd always come with me to the social functions and just stay within about a metre because uh, things happen. You yeah, know, right. you can be accused of stuff. So that was a bit sad. But uh, I think Australia, I've only been back now what, five years. Mm -hmm. Certainly in Treasury, there's not that great people. I brought some great people into Treasury, but there wasn't the drinking sessions. There wasn't the sense of humour. We had some, there's some great women there with great senses of humour and some of the blokes even. But uh, uh, it wasn't the same atmosphere that you had in the uh, 70s and 80s. And, of course, Keating. Keating is, I think, one of the most humorous people I've ever met in my life. He hides it pretty well. <laughs> but uh, I can remember many times uh, in the old Parliament House mm -hmm. and even the new Parliament House where we would be crying with laughter at some of his impersonations of his... Uh, uh, cabinet colleagues. He did now the late great Bob Hawke. He could yeah. do a fantastic impersonation of Hawkey, but others as well. So um, no, they were great days in Treasury. But you know, you, you only get, unless you're Shirley MacLaine, you only get one go at life. So you got to move on. But you stayed there, like you said. Your first part of your career was in Treasury. What made you depart? I went to the IMF in '78 uh, for two years. Mm -hmm. Uh, to represent Australia in the executive director's office. And I had a great boss there, the late Bobby Whitelaw. And that opened my eyes to the international world. Yep. It was almost criminal to get paid for it. It was such a great job, right. just learning every day. Bobby was a great guy. And I thought, yeah, this is interesting. And then um, I went again to Washington in 80 from, uh, God, 85 to 88 yep. with a grand title of Minister Economic. And what does that actually mean? Well, you're representing Australia's economic and financial interests in the United States and Canada. Okay. And uh, you had, in a sense, the deputy ambassador level. There were three other ministers or something. And that was just a great job. Every day was terrific. You were meeting with senior people at the Fed, uh, Greenspan, oh, yeah. um, people at the Treasury. Um, and it's Washington is a great town. Washington is Canberra 20 to 40 times more interesting and it's got a nightlife and a lot of people, a lot of fun. And then I came back and Canberra looked pretty small. Yeah. But I once again, I was working with the late Chris Higgins who was a running mate and died of a heart attack in December 1990. And he'd been over to live in... Um, Paris and before that he'd done his PhD in America and he kept saying to me, you know, there's another world out there. And then I kept seeing these people coming down from Sydney. I uh, was offered a job in 91, I think, by Schroeder's, Peter Mason. Right. And I was so scared as a public servant about the risk. I didn't take it. I should have taken it. It was a good job. But I, I was dumb enough not to realise it was a great job. And then... Um, what was Swiss Bank, uh, SBC, Domingue Sparry, yeah. Wayne Peters and Clive Standish uh, uh, rang me one morning and they said, would you be interested in joining us? And I said, yeah. They said, book a, book a table at the best restaurant in Canberra. We'll be down there at 7.30 tonight. And that was the uh, Cedar Room at the Hyatt Hotel. And uh, I, I was going to say after a couple of bottles of red wine, I said, count me in. I said, count me in within five minutes. And that was the best thing I ever did. Uh, they both in their own ways were 
were devils, uh, but they were good fun. And they taught me that, uh, you know, there was a life out there. I was so naive, I actually asked for a duty statement. And Clive just went, what? I said, what do you want me to do? And they said, oh, I don't know. Come along and we'll work it out. And that's the difference, I think, in the psyche of a lot of the public servants. Structure versus unstructure or? Oh, it's more um, not willing to take a risk. And I was certainly in that camp. Yeah, okay. It helped because they said, look, forget about the money. We'll guarantee you this, which helps. Yeah, okay. And then uh, I said, all right, count me in, boys. And they said, uh, when are you going to start? And I said, well, I've got to wait till after the budget, which was in about six weeks' time. And they said, well, rubbish, because we know you. In six weeks' time, you'll say, no, I've got to stay in Treasury out of loyalty. So they said, you quit and come tomorrow. And we've got a yacht that we um, have up in the Sundays for about six, eight weeks every year with a skipper. I, I love sailing. He said, get some mates and you can have it for a week gratis. And I thought, well, if this is the private sector, that's pretty good. <laughs> that's pretty good. So I went sailing up there and then uh, probably about the start of September 1993, I wandered into um, Grosvenor Place down here on George Street, yeah. not knowing what the hell I'd done. I took a bloke with me, a very good mate of mine, John Larum. He came in as chief economist because I didn't want to be a chief economist. And they said, fine, so appoint someone else as chief economist and you can come in as, I don't know, director of research and economics. In the private sector, you learn very quickly titles don't mean anything. Cheap. Cheap, and they're easy to give away. I went into that and um, it was good fun. It was great fun. And then one night they put me straight on the executive committee and one night, one summer's night at dinner, Clive turned around and said, oh, Fraze, are you interested in uh, running the asset management firm? It's it's a mess. Knock it into shape and we'll sell it. Uh, but can I ask you one thing before you go to that? Why did they actually come to you and start with? Oh, I don't know. I, I think what was a little bit different with Treasury, um, I actually like I like people, most people. You know, I'm everybody's mate until I get cross, but I like people. And the people coming down from either the uh, – New York or London, with some exceptions, and from Sydney, were good fun. I used to make them welcome as deputy secretary. Like I wouldn't treat them as uh, carpetbaggers like a lot of people in Treasury did. Yeah, right. And because uh, people in Treasury would say, well, look at them with their cufflinks and gold watches and the whole bit. Whereas I used to think, God, I wish I had cufflinks and gold watches. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. Wayne just rang me one day and he said, you ought to come with us. And uh, it was, he did me a huge favour, got me out of Canberra, broke out of it. I was very scared, didn't have money, so it's not as if I had savings to fall back on. Right, okay. I was so um, timid, I, which turned out to be a good thing. I preserved my superannuation, which turned out to be a brilliant move. Yeah, right. But uh, at the time, most people were left cashed in their superannuation. And uh, John Larum and I uh, came up to Sydney. I kept the family in Canberra that I was... Oh, really? And commuted. Okay. Because I didn't want to take the boys out of uh, school. Yeah. I was that worried it wasn't going to last. But, uh, you know, it's but it's about life. As I keep saying, you, you only get one go at it. So do you plan ahead much? Because obviously, you know, I was taking a bit of a laissez-faire attitude finally no. when you got into. It's like those questions at interviews where you say to someone, where do you want to be in five years' time? <laughs> Look, there's a lot of good people who say, I'm going to do this, this and this, yeah. but. I think I've never thought that. 
I went to Washington the second time purely because the job came up and uh, uh, I think the secretary at the time said, are you interested? And I said, sure. And he said, well, get on the uh, get on the plane. So I don't really plan. I mean, luck's a fortune. Yeah, but you've got, to, you've got to make yourself lucky. So how do you make yourself lucky? Well, you know, it's industrious work. Say the people who work hard tend to be luckier than yeah. most. And there's nothing wrong with luck as long as you recognise the role of luck. The thing about luck is to take advantage when it breaks your way um, and not to tell people it's your brilliance in doing things but to ascribe to luck the role it's played in your life. I have been incredibly lucky. Fantastic parents going to Melbourne High. I went to Monash when it was the centre of radical politics. The first two years I was a dyed-in-the-wool socialist, but it was basically socialism of envy because we were poor. I was hitchhiking to uni. And I've rapidly drifted a little bit to the right in each successive year. And you just get lucky, but just recognise it. And I found that uh, with UBS I had a few lucky breaks. I've always had people I've worked for who have been terrific, and that is the greatest luck. So, And the number of people who were terrific gave me great discretion. I say to people, I've never really worked for anybody since about 1976, and that's not entirely untrue. They gave okay. me a lot of discretion. Yeah. I had a few people I worked for who I just ignored, so that was fine, and it's it sort of turned out all right. So you got given that big opportunity to run asset management, did you say, earlier? Uh, in Sydney, yeah. And um, at that stage, uh, a fellow, Gary Brinson, out of Chicago, right? Brinson Partners, uh, had bought out the asset management firm of what was then um, Swiss Bank. And at those days, it was only $40 billion US dollars under management, chicken feed. Yeah. He's still alive, so I'll be careful, but he wasn't the most, uh, most attractive guy. Um, but he, uh, he once threatened, well, he, he was rude to me in front of all the other country heads. Right. And, uh, I said, well, the bugger that, I'll uh, give that away. But that night in Chicago, they'd hired a, God, we had money. He hired a, a big uh, boat, luxury boat to have a cocktail party. And all the senior partners came over and I said, look, nobody talks to me like that. I'll take his teeth out. <laughs> and they said, uh, don't worry. He'll love you now. That's what he does. And the next morning, to be fair, Gary came up to me and said, sorry, my friend, da-da-da. The bonus that year, and it was the first year under Brinson, I put a figure in my head, which was extraordinary. I got three times. So the other partners were right. He wanted to... He wanted to put you in your place. A bit like the Marines, they'd knock you down in America. I love the Marines. And, um, you know, remake you. So uh, I shouldn't be too nasty about it. He was a very smart guy, but uh, not, the, not the sort of guy you want to drive to Darwin with. So, uh, but I was lucky with that. And then um, I was running Australia. That became Asia Pacific. Yep. And then Peter Wolfley, who was then became, who had been head of asset management, rang me one night and he said, uh, I've just gone in to see Marcel Ospel and told him I'm not up to running asset management globally. You ought to, so you're John, now the new head of asset management. And I said, oh, really? And he, I said, uh, so where do I move to yeah. or do I have to move? And he said, Zurich, Chicago or London. And one of the smarter things I've ever done, I said London. 
the thought of going to Zurich was just anathema. <laughs> I don't want to offend too many people, but the Swiss are an interesting group of people. Yep. Uh, the one thing that characterises most of them is a complete lack of humour. Yep. Uh, the Americans had already lived in America for five years. So I went to London in um, end of 2001. We were making... Uh, 200 million net profit after tax, US dollars. Okay. And we had a fantastic ride. By 2006, we were making 1.7 billion. So up from 200 million uh, US dollars to 1.7 billion US dollars net profit after tax. Good years, don't forget those years. Oh, they're fantastic years. And that's why I'm saying you, I would never say it was because of my great leadership, whatever. You had to ride the markets yeah, right. and just make sure you don't foul up and screw up by uh, trying to get in the way of the markets. I mean, I keep saying a trained chimpanzee in some of those markets could have, could have made money. Yeah, right. And then along came the uh, beginnings of the GFC and uh, asset management never got into any regulatory problems, but we did get the uh, blowback from the problems that UBS had in the investment bank and wealth management. And uh, I'd be sitting in the London office and uh, be scared to pick up the phone after seven or eight o'clock because it often would be one of my US clients saying, Gajan, we love you, but we, we can't deal with UBS because you're a bunch of crooks because they were being indicted by the SEC and That's the right, whole yeah. bit. Yeah, right. So we lost a hell of a lot of money. But we re and then I quit because I was fed up with the, uh, what I thought were some of the practices in UBS, and then they brought in a grizzled old German, Oswald Grubel, uh, he, great guy, really great guy, and he spoke to me, and uh, I'd quit in August 2008, just before the, um, the crisis developed, and I said, Ozzy, you've got to do this, this, and this, but I won't be here because I gave 12 months notice. I haven't told anybody by the CEO, and he said, huh? What are you doing that for? Why don't you stay? I need a friend. And then um, he uh, he said, come to Zurich. Be in Zurich. I need a friend. I said, mate, if we're in Zurich together, <laughs> that friendship will last about three, maybe four days at most. So I stayed in London. And then Ozzy fell on his sword when uh, we carelessly let a trader in the London Investment Bank uh, steal underneath our noses 2.3 billion US which sort of hurts. And uh, Ozzy was a very noble man. And uh, I was with him the night in Singapore when he said, uh, I'm going, can't do this. I've got to do the right thing because nobody would fess up to saying it was their responsibility. Yeah, right. And uh, I was on the group executive board and I remember he went around the group executive board meeting that went to the CFO, the CRO, the head of the investment bank. And he said, whose fault is it, yours? And they all said, no, no, it's not my fault. I remember he turned to me and he said, so, Johnny, it's nobody's fault. I said, it looks like that, Ozzy. <laughs> and uh, no, he's a great guy. I remember that night because we were in an outdoor bar at the uh, hotel watching one of the World Cup uh, games. And I don't smoke, but he forced me to have a cigar with him and I put ash all over his new suit jacket. I didn't tell him till the next morning <laughs> it was me. But, no, it's all good fun. And then that's how it was. So I stuck around again stayed on and we rebuilt uh, asset management, but it was never going to be the same mm -hmm. because as an institutional asset manager in a big bank, 
you always have a question mark around you, and that's still the case now. I think the concerns about that are massively overdone. You think so, do you? Absolutely. Well, I think, you know, being an asset manager in a big bank, and it's, I'll say the same thing about AMP Capital that I chair now. Mm -hmm. We at least have uh, the backing of the bank and the capital. If we, uh, if we do something wrong, touch wood, we have the wherewithal to make good. I think that's a factor that can't be disregarded. There's a lot of boutiques that if they, if they screw up, uh, you won't see the uh, owners for the dust because they don't have the wherewithal. So there's a balance. That said, you know, a lot of boutiques are very good. So it's uh, horses for courses. What did the whole investment banking experience sort of really leave with you? Oh, I think the investment bank, because of the rewards and the speed that those rewards can come, and the only person who has ever properly explain why the reward's so great is Tom Wolfe, the author, in Bonfire of the Vanities, yeah, yeah. when he said it's crumbs off the table. Because the deals are so good, you don't need a, a big uh, commission to generate incredible money. But the reality is uh, some of the people in investment banks, both here in uh, Australia and overseas, are brilliant people. Yeah. Um, I do worry sometimes they, they lose sight about what life's meant to be. But um, there's some brilliant people there, and the speed at which they do things is terrific. And I got involved uh, when I was Secretary of the Treasury in um, buying out the Victorian and New South Wales interests in the Snowy Mountains, and I brought in uh, some very good investment bankers. And the people in Treasury were just gobsmacked at how quickly we worked. We didn't sort of sit around for four hours discussing things. It was right. That's that. What's the price we're going to go in? What do we do? Meeting over and get on with it. And that's nice. But they get rewarded well. I, I found I found the whole thing with the investment banking community uh, invigorating. I did some work for UBS and I was, I, apart from being chairman and CEO of Globalizer Management, uh, they made me, uh, for my sins, chairman of UBS Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Which was pretty much an investment banking organisation. So I did put my foot in the water or toes in the water. Yeah. What was that like? Look, it's a funny place, Saudi Arabia. Um, they are incredibly good friends when you make a friend. They're loyal as anything. Right, okay. They would, by a country mile, be the most hypocritical people I've ever met. Uh, when they came to London, it was always, you know, 10 o'clock, the phone rings, I'm down in uh, Kensington. Come, John, I know a friend, Jamaz, that are, uh, we're up at uh, one of the hotels. There's a car waiting for you downstairs. Come come down and have dinner with us. And you'd go up there and it was a prelude to very long drinking sessions. And as I said, again, I didn't smoke, which upset them. And they love gambling and they love some other pursuits. And um, But then they were friends. And in Saudi Arabia, the... I think I've said the most intoxicated, and I used to play a lot of rugby, as I said, and I was very mediocre, but I could drink. <laughs> I've never been so intoxicated as I was in a dinner party in Riyadh that was put on for my um, my benefit, and those were the days we flew in in private jets. Mm. And I went there. We go into this beautiful house. It's all full of uh, the dignitaries, uh, ministers of finance, deputy governor of Sama, and uh, half an hour in, my English offsider 
came up to me and he said, Fraze, if you don't have a drink, they're going to throw us out. Because you're the guest of honour, they won't have a drink until you have a drink. And I'd been asking for Perrier water, so I said, <laughs> uh, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't happen to have a red wine. And with that, the walls rolled up and about four in the morning, we sort of staggered to the car. And uh, But they look, they've been blessed with this incredible wealth. They're trying to come to come to some sort of resolution about where they want to take Saudi Arabia. Mm. Uh, the year, they squandered a lot of money. They've got some massive social issues, but I'm delighted to see what they've done in terms of women. Yeah. Because uh, I always remember flying into Dubai where they announced they're going over the border of the Emirates and the women would get up and go to the uh, bathroom and take off all the black stuff and mm. uh, come back and jeans and stilettos so good on him for doing that and it's hard because there's a lot of people there who have a vested interest in keeping things very conservative yeah and um but they're loyal friends uh when we were in trouble in 2008 big trouble i had to fly down to Riyadh on a saturday morning and i raised three billion us dollars in two meetings with the governor of uh, the central bank and the Minister for Finance on a handshake. And then we flew back to Paris that afternoon or that evening. As it turned out, uh, the then head of UBS who was replaced with us said, oh, we don't need three billion, we only need two billion. And years later, the Minister for Finance, a lovely guy, absolutely lovely guy, he said, John, the only reason we don't chop your head off is you'd scaled it back from three billion to two billion. Uh, but that was done on a handshake, and uh, we'll do the paperwork later. And they didn't make a lot of money out of that deal because we did it through uh, discounted shares. So the experience was great. Abu Dhabi, uh, Kuwait, uh, Dubai, Oman, Bahrain, Bahrain. Um, they were all great places to go. And uh, I, uh, at one stage I was asked if I'd move the headquarters of Global Asset Management to uh, – Abu Dhabi, and I went very close to doing that yeah. because there were really only eight of us in the head office. I ran a very diversified business, and the thought of those beautiful twilights were lovely with the winds coming off the Gulf, and um, I was tempted. And go yachting as well. Go yachting, you could, uh, and the water is so beautiful. I mean, to go for a run along the beach and then dive into the Gulf waters, it's like a lukewarm path. I didn't go there. It's, you know, it's London's a great place to live. Great place. Well, what made you come back then? Um, I got a call from uh, Ian Watts, who used to work for me and was then the, uh, the head of the Department of uh, Prime Minister and Cabinet. I had uh, resigned as uh, CEO in December 13, but I'd stayed on as Chairman of Global Asset Management. I'd set my sights on uh, dividing my time between London and Melbourne and Sydney. I've still got a house in London. And uh, Watty, who I'd known in the 70s, who became a very, very uh, conservative chap, said, uh, oh, the Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, wants you to be Secretary of the Treasury. I'd never met Tony Abbott, never spoken to him. And I said, oh, mate, I, I don't think so. 
And then I got a call. Uh, he rang back and he said, well, Tony's or the Prime Minister's asked, will you come in and see him when you're next in Australia? By this time, I'd also taken the chairmanship at Victoria Funds Management Corporation, which was great. I used to fly out at my own expense every month to do that. So I went up to Canberra and that's when I knew what the public service is like. You know, it's not even a cup of coffee or, you know, we have a, have a beer. But Tony Abbott was terrific. I'd met him. I walked into his office and um, he put his finger, thumped me in the chest and said, you've never fought for your country, nor have I, Tony Abbott. You've made a few quid. You owe it to your country to take this job. And that hit a nerve because I have always felt guilty about the fact that I've never had to put, you know, the toughest, most dangerous thing I ever did was put my head into a rugby scrum in the front row. Now, that can be dangerous, but you're not going to lose your life. Yeah. And I'd done a lot of work with Help for Heroes in England, yeah. and those guys are fantastic. Uh, the sense of humour they've got, a bloke without a leg or half a face. So we'd raised a lot of money for them. I used to pay for the dinners with... We were the second largest hedge fund fund of manager of managers in the world. So we got them along and then we get a couple of boys from Help for Heroes. The English cricket team were tremendous, Flintoff. Yep. Uh, the yeah, English yeah. rugby team, uh, Hastings from uh, uh, the Scottish rugby team. They'd all do it for nothing. I just pay for a boozy night at uh, one of the better hotels. And we get two boys who um, had been heroes in Iraq or if, and they'd tell their war stories. We're all big boys. We love hearing about it. And then they'd write cheques for 500,000 quid or whatever. And uh, so we've raised a hell of a lot of money for Help for Heroes. I loved it because the soldiers were just tremendous. And uh, we uh, got them started in uh, the Dakar rally, which was never held again in Dakar because of the terrorists. And they were hopeless at doing it, but they'd go out and get in the Dakar rally. And to see these blokes with only one leg or one arm berating the others for not being strong enough or being big. But they were, it was good fun. So when he did that on my chest, Struck, yeah. I felt very guilty. Yeah. And I said, yeah, all right. And I said, does hockey know about this? And he turned to Peter Credlin and I got the distinct impression that he didn't know about it. Oh, really? So I said, well, I'd better see hockey. So I saw him twice and oh, I felt a joy. I'd always loved Treasury. It had been very good to me and I'd heard things had fallen off quite badly and I still had a number of people I knew there so I um, took the job. What was the mandate? Uh, the first mandate was to find my successor because I was um, 64 at the time and I said to Tony look the best I'll do is two to three years as it turned out I stayed for three and a half and the other one was to uh, get some fiscal discipline in try to get the budget on track and the most important thing is to uh, grow the economy. So got in the car and drove down to Canberra and spent most of my time living at the Hyatt Hotel because Canberra, I loved Canberra in the early days and I became a great fan of the Raiders and I used to run with a running club there after I finished playing rugby. But after you've lived in London, um, Canberra's a bit of a step down. Yeah. And... Uh, so I spent most of my time living at, uh, out of my own pocket at the height. So for, frankly, for the last couple of years, I didn't get paid because I was spending all my salary on the height can get pretty expensive, particularly when Parliament's sitting. And um, 
I don't regret. It was good. Um, Did you achieve what you wanted to achieve? Well, it's, it, it's a bit like wrestling with custard. You know, it's, it's very hard to know whether you've achieved something. I'm proud that we got the budget heading back to surplus and, of course, what's ca- happened uh, with the virus has uh, mm. rightly thrown that out. But we got it heading back to surplus. We got taxes down. Um, Scott Morrison, who I think has done a wonderful job, uh, we had a number of uh, discussions in Cabinet uh, on getting taxes down. There were a rump in Canberra, not in Treasury, but in who actually wanted to put taxes up. Oh, really? And I'm totally of the view that you don't tax your way to a better economy. I said once at one of the cabinet meetings uh, when I was asked to run the case that uh, I couldn't give a damn about the Chardonnay socialists in the uh, eastern suburbs in Sydney or or those in the Chardonnay socialists in Brighton where I've got a house in uh, Turak or South Yarra. My worry is the aspirational wealthy in the western suburbs. I used to run in the 90s with a bunch of ex-league and um, union players who were tough as anything. But what did they want to do? They wanted to work, make a quid, send their kids to private school, and that was the driver. And that's where I saw the impact of uh, personal and company tax rates. Yeah. And uh, I don't resile from that. And I'm delighted to hear that at this stage... uh, the Prime Minister's not talking about tax increases. Uh, there'll be reform, I think, of the tax system. You think there will be? I, well, when you say reform of the tax, look, every galah comes out and says what they're going to do about tax, but the point is to get taxes down. Uh, there are questions about the incidence of tax. Uh, I run, or my son runs two farms for me, yep. and I can see what the impact of tax rates are on people and capital formation. I got laughed at in the Senate estimates in 2015 because I had the temerity to say that what Reagan did in the mid-'80s was not a bad model. It had a massive impact on capital formation. And, of course, you know, a few of the senators and a couple of the journalists went down there and said, oh, this is Reaganomics, and that just attested to the level of political uh, commentary. But... um, You know, you look around the world, low taxes are often associated with better growth rates. And I think now we've got an opportunity coming out of this. I'm a great believer in small and uh, medium-sized businesses. I declare an interest in there. I'm on the board of Judo Bank, and that's where we lend to. But small and medium-sized businesses are people who knuckle down and put a bit of sweat into it. It's also where all the jobs are in this country. That's exactly right. And, you know, I've... I get into trouble for saying it, but big companies and the bureaucracy in Canberra are very alike. It's about committees, it's about slow-moving processes of decision-making, and small and medium-sized businesses, um, it's fantastic. I remember my old man uh, was an, an accountant for a building firm, and I'd go down there and work during the uh, vacation. You go down to the joinery shop, and you'd see these blokes, they're building hospitals, and the smell of sawdust up your nostrils and stuff like that, and they'd go home and they were covered in dirt. And So I'm a great believer in small and medium-sized businesses, great believer in the farming community, and I think the more we can help them with lower taxes, that doesn't mean you can't reform the tax base. 
and there are problems there, but uh, I think the governments, the state governments in particular, will be forced to think about more the impact of their tax programs and the incidence of it in terms of the economic outcome. Well, I'm going to ask you about the economics in a second. Just one question. When you came back to join Treasury, did you fit in? No, not really. Not at all. And how do they accept you? You know, you're the bloke who left us. Well, it was more the fact I had some money. I had one clown down there say to me uh, before I actually joined, he said, what sort of car are you going to drive? And I had a beautiful Mercedes I'd left back in London. And I don't know, I knew where he was going, so I said, oh, I'm not sure, Lamborghini, Ferrari. <laughs> I had no intention. I, was going to, I bought an Audi and a BMW, but I thought I'd take him down a bit. And he said, oh, I'm not sure about that. I suggest you get a hybrid <laughs> and you better get uh, a small hybrid because you don't want to be on the front page of the uh, Daily Tele. I was delighted a couple of years later he bought the same Audi that I bought. Uh, but no, they, they thought I had Well, I did have money and I didn't mind. I didn't show off. But um, Yeah, you worked hard for it. I worked. Yeah, well, I was lucky, but uh, there's some lovely secretaries. Um, I had a small group of the secretaries. Uh, three or four of the women were fantastic. And we'd knock around and uh, a couple of the blokes. No, they, they didn't. I didn't fit in. The people in Treasury, they're politically correct. That had been imbued into them within the bureaucracy. And what do you think about that? We've gone too far. Oh, I do. I, I mean, my view is, um, if anybody shows me that anybody has come up against prejudice in their career aspirations, I'll deal with that. And I've got a record, I reckon, second to none, male or female, ethnic group. Uh, I took a particular interest in uh, the Aboriginal community. I must admit I took a particular interest in hiring ex-servicemen and uh, I got associated a bit with the commandos out here. I've got a mm. terrible record of these boys topping themselves when they come back. I do. Um, but the rest of it, the, the openness in debate is worrying in this country, really worrying. And the fact that you can people pile on if you don't have the same view. And I've always regarded myself um, as very much a small L liberal. And uh, I don't put myself into any one pot, but I've always believed that uh, once you'd stop, and that's where John Stone was great. He would often be berated for saying, oh, he only had one view. Well, that, that was garbage. Those Friday night drinks that I laugh about were a period where nobody suffered and this is the 70s and uh, 80s, nobody suffered for coming out with views that were diametrically as long as you could defend them. Yeah, right. And my rule of thumb is always, if you're going to come up with an idea, have three reasons to defend it. If you can get up with those three reasons. And that was a great thing about Treasury. When we all went to Treasury in the early 70s, we were all supporting the Labor Party. We were great believers in Gough Whitlam. Um, I remember a number of us ran in a, torch lit um, run out to Queanbeyan uh, in support of the Labor Party for the 74 election. Uh, but we saw what happened when you don't have proper government processes and you have craziness. I'm, I'm rambling a bit, but I remember when uh, Bill Hayden took over as treasurer, a great man, and he told me years later it was true. He said to the, the then secretary, Fred Wheeler, 
uh, the most important thing I should do is make sure we get voted out of office as quickly as possible because the uh, expenditure had been going up in multiples of two or whatever each year. So, yeah, right. And, you know, it's not a case of being Labor or Liberal or, in a, or Conservative or Labor in the UK. It's a case of being willing to talk about ideas and to not berate people just because they have an idea that's different to you. And that, I think, is the worry I had about the Canberra bubble. It was one of the reasons why I created the bigger Sydney and Melbourne offices, and we've now got one in Perth. I wanted to get people who came in at senior levels, yeah. and we got some terrific people. Um, Marianne Marakovic, who came back, she used to work for me in the uh, late 80s. She's now the Deputy Secretary in charge of taxation policy, and she works out of the Sydney office. Uh, we got a couple of women who came in from the Commonwealth Bank on tax policy, they'd actually seen tax policy as it affected business. We now Not all of them were successful. Uh, you know, we had some blokes who had great ideas, but when it came to uh, putting those ideas on paper, they had trouble. So, but you've got to experiment. You never, your batting averages, we even saw with Don Bramman, it wasn't 100, but yeah. you've got to accept that there will be failures and move on. But we've got a wider input of ideas and I'm delighted that um, I also encourage people to go from Treasury into other parts. So we've got uh, John Lonsdale, who's now Deputy Chairman at um, APRA. Yep. We've got Michael Brennan, who's uh, Head of the Productivity Commission. And these are great people. And that's, that's what worried me. Treasury, when I was there in the 80s, early part of the 90s, we used to recruit our own. We thought we were the only people in the world. We discovered the DNA and it was crazy. And I was part of it. We used to say, oh, he's not a treasury person. We've got to be careful. We were very reluctant to recruit outside treasury. And I think that was... Um, Is that arrogance? Well, it, it was Or ignorance. Bit. Well, you know, other groups do the same thing. The Reserve Bank uh, pretty much recruits from their own. That They might have worked, but it it's a pretty pretty elitist view. Yeah. But it's not just the intellectual content, it's the experience. And until you've been there, having to make a quid, until you've been there and had a project that's gone pear-shaped and you've got a front of board or your boss and say, so, oh, look, sorry, that didn't work, and, you know, when people are after your neck, it's, it focuses your thought. Now, there's a terrific people in Treasury. And, uh, you know, uh, Stephen Kennedy's got a great executive team. Yep. And I like to think, you know, that's a little bit because we've, uh, we've got people coming in with different ideas. We also made a real effort when we were recruiting. I put a lot of effort in the uh, graduate recruitment to get a broader geographical mix so they weren't all just coming in from uh, the better universities in Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, I don't like quotas, hate quotas, but we did make a real effort to encourage people from rural parts of Queensland, WA, uh, to come in. And they had different backgrounds. Uh, you had people growing up on farms, and they're different. I'm, I'm a bit biased about the farming. I, uh, I mean, they're a businessman, well, a business it's, person. They're... And it's tough because you can be the greatest businessman under the sun as a farmer, but you've got to roll the dice on the weather. 
And uh, I've got two farms which, with good advice, I bought which didn't have a drought. And that, once again, was luck and having the good good luck to have two people advising me who put it into that. But, you know, I, I know with my son when uh, we didn't, it's been when the rain hasn't come and we're about to put the wheat in, he goes, hmm, this is a bit of a worry. And that does, He's a brilliant farmer, uh, but... That's that's life, and that's what we're doing a little bit at the moment with the uh, world and Australian economy. Well, let's ask, let's get on to that because I'm yeah. and you're the man who's got the, the experience in this in this space. Where is the Australian economy at? Well, it was uh, pretty good going into it. Um, I was amazed. In fact, I was amazed at one of the dinners you hosted in Melbourne, where everybody went around the table, and I think I finally came out of my stupor and I said. A few people looked at where the unemployment rate is. I remember you challenged a few people that night. Yeah, yeah and I thought, you know, this is this is groupthink, and then they pile on and they say, oh, you know, it's a bit like Monty Python. Oh, we lived in a shoebox. Oh, you lived in a shoebox. We lived in a matchbox. Um, it was going pretty good going in, and uh, I think a lot of the credit for that goes to the Treasury people and uh, uh, Morrison, who I think was a great treasurer, a oh, really? great treasurer. Yeah. I used to say to the Treasury people, the problem we've got with Morrison is he's smarter than all of you and he works harder and his intuitive judgment is tremendous. He and Keating, in my mind, are intuitive economists and given a choice between picking an intellectual economist or an intuitive economist, I'd go for the latter. I digress. And then along comes the virus. Well, it's like getting a baseball bat into your face and then three more hits. I think we'll come out of it, but the biggest risk is we have a second wave. That's not profound. Yeah. But if we have that, then it's going to be tough, although we will have learnt what we've got to do. I think uh, the government's done the right thing. I think we've been blessed that this has happened at a time of extraordinarily low interest rates. Just think of yeah, it as happened when we hadn't have it. Uh, the build-up in debt is not good, but uh, I don't normally forecast, but if I did, if I was forced to, uh, I reckon inflation will get a bit of a pickup in the next three to five years. So the art form is to find an asset which is going to benefit from inflation and probably leverage into that, and that's obviously housing, good housing. But, you know, I was the one who said there was a bubble back in uh, mid-2015 and I got a lot of bad press on that, yeah. but I was right. I've never got the credit for it, but I said it publicly at the uh, estimates. I remember Hockey called us in and he said, God, you're going to kill the economy. I said, well, I think they used the term blind Freddy could see it was a bubble. Yeah. And uh, it's not a bubble now, but I think, uh, inflation will be a big part of the cure to get rid of the debt. And um, did we did we cut interest rates too too quickly? On from my perspective, I thought we did. I probably would have been a bit slower. There's a lot of self funded retirees out there who yeah. are hurting big time. Absolutely. And to push them into equity products, I think is terrible. You do. Yeah. And I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I, I went to university so many decades ago, but there was a thing called pushing on a string, which was the liquidity trap, that you get to a point where you put more and more money into the economy and interest rates stay at a very low level and it does nothing. Yeah. And um, But, you know, it's a hard decision 
People think making these decisions on monetary policy is a highly intellectual exercise. It's a matter of judgment. And given I would have preferred it not to have gone as low as they are, but, you know, I might be wrong. I think what the Reserve Bank's done in terms of supplying liquidity to the market is spot on. And I remember in the GFC, when I was on the group executive board for UBS, the the call you waited for every afternoon was the CFO just after four o'clock coming around and saying what our liquidity position for the bank was. And that's when I realised when another bank wouldn't take your paper or you refused to take the paper of another bank, that's when you knew you had a problem. So uh, I can't fault the monetary authorities for doing that. But um, the low interest rates for a lot of households, we've got a very high household debt ratio. Thank God the interest rates are low. And I think we'll get out of it. But I think if we can help that along with some uh, sensible taxation incentives for capital spending. So what would, yeah, okay, on that, what taxation incentives would you bring in? I'm I'm still a believer in incentives which are focused on capital formation and corporate tax. Cut it? Yeah. Making investment decisions when I was in London Mm -hmm. and in in America and not often did people sit around saying, well, what's the taxation situation? But they do at the margin. And you look, you look at your, having a hurdle for your internal rate of return. Yep. And then you do look at the taxation situation. And for us, in a region where we are a very high taxing nation, where you and also high labour costs, yep. it's all part of the amalgam. Yep. I am a low. T- I totally proud of it. I'm a low tax person, and um, that's where I'd be focusing. The other thing is the reform of the taxation system. It will take time, whereas we need things that can be done quickly. Where do you see the U.S.? Well, I'm a great believer in the flexibility of the U.S. Uh, having lived there for two years in the late 70s and three years again in the late 80s, the great strength of the United States is the flexibility of their labour markets. And you, uh, I remember the first Saturday I was there at the IMF in 78, I was staying in a hotel and I went for a run through DC to go down to the mall and I noticed something. The buildings were all surrounded by these very good cars parked around the building sites. And then I realised the labourers who were up there all were driving the Mustangs and the Camaros and the whole bit. And you'd speak to these guys, you'd meet them in the bar, they knew about the tax rates and they wanted to work. So it brought home to me the flexibility of your labour market. They would go to different states, counties. We don't do that as much. And they're not afraid of work. And you see that in America where you've got uh, a contractor to come in to your house to get things done, and it just builds on itself. So with UBS Global Asset Management, we had a hell of a lot of people who you know, used to be ex-employees, went out and formed their own firm. I think the US will get through this and come out of it. They'll come out of it well. They've got the low interest rates. Will they come out as the number one economy or will China surpass them? I think the uh, pressure of population growth at the end of the day, China will win. But where the US has a great advantage, particularly on the military side, is technology, intellectual property. Uh, The issues with China are fundamental for the US. They are even more fundamental for us. And this is going to be difficult. 
But uh, the innovation in the US is breathtaking. And that's not going to stop. And that's why they have it all over Europe. And uh, the Europeans are going to have their own issues with the European Union. I was a great fan of Brexit. Total. I'm a dual citizen, by the way, so uh, I was a great fan of Brexit. Uh, I think uh, that will be a huge plus for the UK economy in the next five to ten years, and I think the pressures on oh, the Oh, you Europe think so? Think UK, you think the UK is going to stand up okay? Very much so. Uh, the European Union, uh, the fissions between the North and EU countries and the South are not going to get any easier. Look what happened to Greece. They didn't have the flexibility in their exchange rate. So, look, I might be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I hope, hope the Europeans do well. But uh, they've got big issues and uh, the Germans are going to have to put their hand in the pocket to, uh, to fund it and whether they're willing to do that for a long time. But I'd be backing the US. I mean, uh, name dropping here, but I did meet Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm because uh, UBS hired him to do one of these client talks and I met him in the green room. Yeah. Uh, incredible guy. First question to me was, hey, John, heard so much about you, which he hadn't. <laughs> Tell me about you. It's a great opening line, a real politician's line. But he said uh, in his talk, he said, uh, in my whole life, don't bet against the US. And I think that's right. No matter what they're political travails should be, the US economy is almost less relevant to their government uh, than at other times. And it's, uh, it's basically four regions and in the um, 70s and 80s when one of the regions was down, another region would do all right and they're big. Yeah. They got, what, 330, 340 million people. So, um, you know... Trump gets a lot of bad publicity. Now and again, I sort of screw my face up, but I think with uh, some of the things that he promised he'd do, doing he is delivered on, yep. and I think the strategic issues with China, with yep. North Korea, I think having uh, having a strong person there is not a bad thing to have. Are they going to pull the manufacturing out of China? Well, it's for all of this. I mean, it's been an eye-opener. And uh, our dependence on China has been very, very good for us. But it's come at a price. We're getting more vocal. More local? You no, no, more vocal. Vocal. Well, I think we should. Do you really? Yeah, well, you can't, you can't stand up as a country and be pushed around. I mean, it's, it's like in the front row of a scrum. If you let the other bloke give you a smack in the nose and don't do anything about it, you're just asking him to give two or three more. I know that's probably politically incorrect, but uh, we've got to stand up for ourselves. And I think what the government's done is, is correct. The Chinese will respect more people standing up for themselves than being pussycats. And these are pretty pretty harsh statements the Chinese have made. Yeah, and right. they could be construed as pretty big threats. Yes. And thank God we're very much aligned with the United States. But... Um, you see what's, you know, we've got to stand up. Now, it's going to be a cost for us, certainly in tourism, certainly in uh, trade and the primary products, possibly, but I'm hoping good sense will come out of it because at the end of the day, uh, the Chinese are traders. 
and uh, people will come to their senses. We've seen their traders with the uh, agreements they came to with Trump, but um, I don't think the Chinese are that silly to go to a point where this is cataclysmic. I pray to God it isn't, but I, uh, I think how the government's handled China to date has been terrific. But have we played it pretty smart with China up to now, John, or have we oh, I, look, I got the I, impression we folded I pretty easily? I um, have three joint ventures in global asset management in China. Okay. We made a bit of money out of them, not as much as we should because trying to get profits back is, is pretty hard work. Yeah, absolutely. But I couldn't own more than 49%. Now, the Chinese can own 100%. I couldn't buy an apartment in Beijing for my staff. They can come here and buy stuff. Now, under Morrison as treasurer, we significantly tighten the foreign investment rules. And uh, if you ask what I achieved in Treasury, that I think was one of the best things we did. We got a very good guy in as chairman of the Foreign Investment Review Board, the former head of ASIO. And I think it's an issue. And... Um, it was funny, though, with foreign investment, I put one of my blokes out to go around Australia for a month. See, this was the difference. I said, go out and meet people. And I had a team go out to Western Victoria, go out to the growing areas in Victoria, ask them what's happening. And he came back and he said, the rural community actually are pretty happy with Chinese buying up farms. And of oh. course, yeah. And of course, the real reason is if you're a seller, you want the Chinese bidding you for your farm. Not all of them. If you're a buyer, you don't want to be competing against them. But it was interesting. And a lot of the local governments said, well, the Chinese are bringing money in. So it's a lot more complex than you think. Yeah. So, But I think, I remember saying to the then Chinese ambassador, he came in to complain about the decision um, on Osgrid. And I said to him, my friend, but we don't have reciprocity. I can't go up and buy 100% of a firm in China. No way. I can't. And then he said to me, but John, you've got to realise we're a young and growing country. 5,000 years old. And I started laughing and then he smiled and he said, well, that's the line. I walked him out to the elevator and down and he put his arm around me and he said, yes, I understand. But uh, if it is a bit rich. I think uh, I think what the government's doing in tightening at least temporarily the foreign investment uh, rules it makes sense, and I think we may have to sacrifice some economic growth to look at uh, self-sufficiency and things like medical supplies. I'm delighted with what uh, Angus Taylor is doing with fuel security, uh, and there's issues. Um, there's issues with armaments. Now, fortunately, we get most of them from uh, Europe or Western Europe and the US, but there'll come a time, you know, it, it's, I hate to say this because I was the greatest free marketeer in the 80s, but I'm not sure we took account of the strategic implications as much as we should have, and we need to think about that going forward. It's going to be difficult, and as I said, net-net will probably take a diminution in our actual growth rates for some time and we've got to recognize that and we can offset that i think by being more flexible in our work practices uh, we don't need great reform reviews to realize we've got too much red tape and we can move quickly and um, i'm hoping 
and I've seen nothing to dissuade me that uh, Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg and uh, Matthias Corman will move quickly on things that we can cut down. Now, the issue is with the states, and one would hope that a lot of the states realising that their economic growth is going to be really smacked around mm. will look at these things with a different uh, lens. Who's going to be our next trading partners then? Well, um, it'll still be China. It's yep. not going to stop. Yep. And it's going to be Korea. And I'm still hopeful that one day uh, reunification will uh, come with Korea. I mean, you know, might be several years off. Mm. Um, the UK, I mean, we, we used to be a big trading partner with the UK. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And we're not going to stop trading with Europe. I mean, trade's about comparative advantage. We also have the potential. I mean, we, we've got fast-growing economies in Indonesia, not as fast-growing as they should be in the Philippines. But I keep so I used to say to the Treasury, Treasury people, so what's the population of Taiwan? I had a business in Taiwan. Same was, as us, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Well, you're one of the few people who gets it right mm. first go out. And most of them say, oh, three to four million. And it's a big country. Mm. And they've stood up for themselves Absolutely. against China. And uh, we've seen increasingly the people in Hong Kong are doing the same. Yep. Uh, so necessity is the mother of invention. And I think, um, I think in a way the dependence on China does encourage a sort of slack attitude and you go out and try to be more entrepreneurial. And there's enough entrepreneurs, Australians around the world, to um, get the best from it. I hope they get attracted back to Australia uh, with lower taxes, but equally I'm very proud, I was one of them, that you had Australians overseas. Um, but it's going to be tough. I mean, the, the issues with the Chinese won't be easily resolved. They will take time, and I suspect, um, the universities are going to have to rethink their operating model. Yeah. I might be wrong there. You're a tariff man? Tariffs? No, absolutely not. If you're going to um, look after industries, then uh, in the world of the second best, God, I'm going back years to this, it's subsidies, targeted subsidies. Uh, Max Gordon, who um, offered me a scholarship to Nuffield College in 19... Uh, 74, but I didn't have enough money to take it. He, his wonderful book, The Theory of Protection, brings it home to you. Tariffs are the worst way to subsidise an industry. Great book, and Max is a great guy. What about our shipping lanes being blocked? Well, that's an American issue. That's why we are very lucky to have an ally in America. We are very lucky. And when we were doing the sail-throughs in the South China Sea, um, were these islands which were growing out of nowhere. Um, it was very good that the Americans were sort of giving a, a guarantee to the Japanese, to Brits and ourselves that they'd be there. We're very lucky to have an ally that, like that because uh, we've got a great military and naval force and air force, but we're only 25 million people. There's a limit. And what do you think about the uh, Confucius Institute's Etc. John, are we are we going to really start really questioning the whole play with China? I would. Would you really? I worry about them. I was privy to some information through when I was on the security committee, so yep. I won't go into that. Yep. But uh, when you catch the tram up past the University of New South Wales, and you see the Chinese consulate right next to it, and um, 
you, I'd be very wary of it. I mean, it's having the Chinese students is fantastic. Yep. The great thing, if our society is better, and I think it is the best, people will learn about that. But I hate the thought of them having to report to um, another power when they're here. Uh, so we should embrace the Chinese students, but I think we should be very alive to the threats that can come. And it comes back to what we touched on earlier about freedom of thought, being able to say what you want. You don't want to be worried in a university lecture hall, you know, about what you're going to say. It's bad enough now. I mean, I, so many students will say to me, you know, how to get ahead. You find out what your lecturer thinks. Oh, um, really? Yeah. Yeah, really. and that that is a worry. I fortunately, when I went to Monash, it was very left-wing, but we had some lovely uh, lecturers who uh, were very open-minded and uh, they almost went out of their way to say, I will mark you down if you just parrot my views to them. But there we go. Business opportunities. Yeah. And you're on a couple of boards now. Three. Okay. Four. You got, what are you, what are you talking about in the boardroom? Oh, at the, mo- at the moment, it's all what we just talked about. How do we get out of this? What's going to be the path? But on the asset management side, it's about um, if you've solved the liquidity or you don't have liquidity issues, yeah. to start thinking about uh, opportunities in the illiquid markets. That's certainly happening, and that's like any any downturn like this. If you're a mug, if you don't look at the opportunities, it's not the time, if you can afford it, that's a big if, if you don't have to worry about liquidity, it's not the time to pull your horns in. It's the time to be brave and stick with your risk settings. To go and raise capital? Sometimes you have to, sometimes you don't. Now, the markets at the moment, uh, this is the... Uh, result of so much money being in the market, uh, not many people are having trouble raising money. Oh. If you're having trouble raising money, it's a bad sign. Yeah. A really bad sign. All right, so you're expecting a fair bit of m and I don't know. I don't know. I think uh, I'm expecting a fair bit of uh, companies saying can't do it and bailing out. Yeah, right. Uh, smaller companies. Yep. Uh, so in the asset management world, I did see recently uh, there were four firms that pulled the plug here in Sydney. They were very small boutiques. Oh, there'll be reorganisation. I think boards will be start to rethink their management teams, the size of them, the remuneration. Yep. Um, people who are good at running organisations when everything's uh, going their way mightn't be the people to uh, turn the organisations around. I agree with that. And we've already seen that. And... Um, Boards themselves, I think I've always thought if you're going to be on a board, you've got to contribute. And um, I've been a great believer you've got to have business experience. And I think that's come to the fore. So it's going to be interesting times, but, you know, people get paid. People get paid, get paid big money now. So I find it a little bit hard when people talk about the stress and everything. Yeah, but they're earning big money. And it's not like the army being thrown into Afghanistan, you, you haven't, you've got a choice. You can walk away. And um, so I'm a little bit hard-nosed on that. What are you looking for in terms of leadership? I don't think there's – that's not the question, but I'll answer the question that you should have – I wanted you to ask me. Oh, leadership, oh, look, I don't think there's one model okay. at all. All right. Um, I – this is readily apparent. I've never read a management book. I've read biographies of good managers. 
um, both in public sector and private sector. I've learned from a lot of managers and leaders, but you've got to get respect. You've got to be a role model for the firm. And you've got to lead by example. And you've also got to be brave because being a good manager or leader is very lonely. You can get all the advice under the sun, but at the end of the day, when you're lying there at one in the morning looking at the ceiling, it's you that has to make the decision and then you've got to sell it. And I think that's a big part of it. And um, it's a difficult question, but... Uh, Do you think they're good at selling it, John? The good leaders? Yeah. Most of them are. I mean, I've, I've always laughed at how people were picked on the basis of quite short interviews. I've always said that I used to find this a treasury of 40 or 45 minutes. Anybody can spin a line for 45 minutes. Absolutely. It's a piece of cake. So when I was running Global Asset Management out of London, I'd always take, for very senior appointments, the man or woman out for dinner. Yep. And generally around about one and a half bottles, they start to dissemble. But 45 <laughs> minutes, they're fine. That's right. And, uh, very true. And it's, I notice some of your colleague uh, headhunters here in uh, Sydney do the same thing. Yeah. But uh, you've got to see how people react under pressure. And um, and what are you seeing at the moment? Are you seeing them reacting well? Not, not in government now, but in, in the corporate world. I'm very lucky. The boards I'm on, on where, and you expect me to say it. I know. <laughs> You'd expect me to say it, but I... I'm my They've own got man. some tough gigs, one of them too. Well, yeah, they are. Mm. Uh, we're blessed with terrific chairs uh, and that's accepting me as chair <laughs> of AMP Capital. I think I'm terrific, but that's for others to judge. Uh, but David Murray's, fan Peter Costello is also fantastic, like David. And um, at Judo Bank, we were building a bank around uh, two very, very, very good CEOs and a chairman and a good board, a small board, which I think is important. Yeah, it's interesting that, yeah. Um, I think, and I think the changes, it's not for me to comment, but the changes in the major banks seem to be in the right direction. Yeah. And I think they've got to, uh, they'll have to do some hard yards in the years ahead. Um, I think Australian leadership is has been good. I think we we tend to, perhaps need to be a little bit more critical when things are good because we tend to look at the dividend and stuff like that and think everything's hunky-dory. Yeah, good point. But, you know, that intellectually we've got nothing. There was no reason to have a cultural cringe in Australia, excepting the uh, rugby league <laughs> and the rugby Australia, <laughs> where I think we've got every reason to have a cultural cringe. We could put cricket up there now too. Yeah, I put cricket there as well. I've... Uh, I'm a tragic, a sports tragic. Everyone's talking about the role of digital coming out of this. Yeah. And the speed of the decision-making and getting closer to your customer as a result. In the boardroom and at the executive level, are we across it enough? And also the contrast question to that is the fear of cyber attack. The cyber attack's terrible. And I always say, well, the best you can do is minimise it, play defence, because there are too, too much powers and people and governments and nasty people around the world right, you know, against us. And I've been very impressed in the uh, firms I'm associated with that we have played defence well, but to think we can eliminate it is a fool's errand. 
In terms of AI, um, people would be surprised to know that I, uh, I majored in econometrics at Monash and did rather well. But I always said that only did one thing for me, which was to give me the right to criticize econometrics. And artificial intelligence, a lot of it is about marshalling and trying to get the data and find the secret relationship in it. And so I'm a little bit skeptical about it. Okay. But I'm seeing people making efforts. It's certainly in terms of organizations with big retail client bases. Yeah. It's going to be a big help. But if we go forward thinking AI is going to relieve us of the responsibility to have good management, we're mugs. And um, that does worry me a little bit. You look at the moment, uh, if any asset management firm with a retail base, what's it all about? It's about talking over the phone to the client who's saying, hang on, I'm 40% down on what it was at Christmas. Why? And I, I had a guy at, uh, in the Australian firm for uh, UBS Global Asset Management who was terrific, paid his way time and time again because he did the investor registry, but he did the client relationships. Yeah, right. Whether it was, um, you know, it's an old- support, isn't it? It's the support. So look, it plays a part and we should put, put energy into it, but we shouldn't think it's going to change the, uh, as the Americans would say, the blocking and tackling that you need to do to get the business running properly. Last two questions. If, I was, if you're standing back now and had the opportunity to go and see those people you talk about, i.e. the PM, where would you say the focus for the next five, 10 years? If we could actually think a little bit more long-term, John. Uh, long-term, well, um, the first and overwhelming priority for a government is to defend your shores. And that comes back to what we said about China. And I would say we need to think seriously about how we defend us. That has uh, issues for the uh, Perhaps the submarines we're buying into. Yep. Uh, it also has questions about the form of our alliance with the US, whether we need even greater guarantees. That's the first one. And the second one is uh, the prosperity of our people. And that's about economic growth. And we have handicapped ourselves over the centuries, seeing it's uh, Captain Cook arrived here yeah. 250 years ago. Uh, but yes, by I was trying to make this uh, podcast timeless. <laughs> uh, the, I'll, I'll edit it later. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, by I think labour market practices, which are understandable while they were brought in, but now look a little bit dated. And as I said earlier, I um, I want to unleash the entrepreneurial power of the men and women in the aspirational classes, and. That is about freeing up the economy. I want to let people get rid of the red tape, which is extraordinary. And I think action by the state governments and the Commonwealth. So I think if Morrison were to build on this terrific model of cooperation with the states, and there are some uh, very good people uh, on the left who, who see this, uh, people who realise that, I mean, it's all about building the making the pie bigger rather than how we divide it up. And that's what drives me and that's what I think 
is good and I would be encouraging, and Morrison does it, to make sure the people in Canberra know that. Canberra is a public service town, so that's why, as I said earlier, I had an outreach program and we anybody who wanted to come and see me in Canberra or Sydney or Melbourne, I, I don't think I said no to anybody because you learnt from them. They came in, they berate you for the policies, they'd say that, but but you learnt about it. And it's the worst thing is uh, people have this perception that uh, Canberra doesn't care. Now, there's some great people in Canberra. The, the woman who was... Canberra uh, doesn't care or Canberra doesn't understand. Look, a lot of people in Canberra do understand. Uh, Glennis Beecham, who's about to retire from the Department of Health, you couldn't meet a finer secretary of the department. And... But she runs a department which has a lot of interaction with the population. Yeah. Um, there are good people. It's just in Canberra. It's, it, I was delighted that Turnbull and Morrison had more and more cabinet meetings in Sydney, partly because it's easier to come from Perth to Sydney than Perth, Sydney, Canberra. And it was probably convenient for them because they live in Sydney and I was living in Sydney, so it was convenient for me, so I was all for it. But the most important thing is you met more people. And uh, just wandering back from uh, the Commonwealth Parliamentary offices, either having a beer after work or having a cup of coffee, you met more people. Whereas um, in Canberra, uh, we always used to laugh, you go out for dinner midweek on a winter's night and... I shouldn't say, but if you let a bomb off, and I'm not <laughs> suggesting anybody should, um, you you wouldn't hit anybody. It was just empty. Yeah. And uh, I think that's a worry. I think um, we need to think more, not just about the Sydney, Melbourne, Canberra triangle, but also about the other states. I'm a big fan of Perth, but I'm a big fan of Brisbane and uh, even Adelaide and Tassie. I like them all. We had a heads of treasury Group with but, these. We, but when are we going to do something about those other cities? All we do is population growth. Sydney and Melbourne. Well, and you got the rest. You talked about the farm farmers and the country. The bush is going. They're struggling. They have been for years. Well, um, a brilliant paper was written by yours truly and uh, the head of the Department of uh, Home Affairs, and where we argued that the debate on immigration was more about the quality of immigration. Yeah and the location of immigration. And uh, it's self-interest because I reckon one of my farms I've got will be houses within 10 years out of uh, Geelong. Geelong's the fastest growing centre in Victoria, followed closely by Ballarat. You go out to Orange. See, I did travel around. I do mm -hmm. talks. I think we should. We've missed the boat. You, you, you go out west... And you look at the buildings going up here, and I'm a great fan of Gladys, but I think, God, what are we creating? Slums. Future slums, to be honest. You said it, not me. Yeah, you're not in. Uh, <laughs> I, um, I think uh, our, we're, we're throwing it away. Switzerland, I will say this, so they don't shoot me when I go back to Switzerland. Switzerland had the good sense, now it's only a country of 7 million or so, yeah. to have about seven major cities. That's right. So they don't have the problems of congestion to the extent we do. Bern, Zurich, Basel are running out of it. But I'm certainly the Oh, Geneva. Yeah. And the UK 
Not to the same extent. No. London's it, built up, but you go down the M4 yep. and you suddenly you see decent-sized cities, Bath, yep. car, and, you know, and I think we've missed that opportunity. Um, I think in the 80s we in Treasury were wrong not to support more infrastructure and we always had, we were, we were taught to knock down arguments. We were brilliant at taking an argument apart. We were like Perry Mason. But with infrastructure, we didn't see an infrastructure project we didn't like. Oh, we did like. We didn't see one. We always took it apart. And I thought we lost a great opportunity to invest heavily into railways and possibly a road system. I mean, America, Eisenhower came back in the 50s and put in these interstates, which helped greatly. And I think we made a huge mistake with that. And I'd love to see it. And... um, Mike Murdoch, who was formerly the head of the Department of Infrastructure, told me that the road between Melbourne and Geelong, they'd put an extra lane or two on the road and the travel time between Melbourne and Geelong came off by something like about 15%. They got the railway uh, between Melbourne and Geelong, they quickened it by about 5 10%. And so people started using the railway. We're never going to get a very fast train. I love trains. I just settle for a reasonably quick train. And um, I think we missed a great opportunity and that's what we ought to be doing. And I do shudder when I I went went out to, I think it's Harris Farm out in the west here. Yep. And I've got a mate out there and um, I didn't break the lockdown. It was just before that. And he's got a lovely little house and he runs a medical practice. And he said, oh, John, it's just crazy because you can't get a car park now outside. And uh, he said, I don't want to live in in the big city. So I think think we ought to push it. The paper that uh, Mike- Is there there enough incentives to do it? Like, you know, do we need public servants, for example, living in Sydney, Melbourne and Canberra? Why are they out in the bush in in a major, in in a city? What- you're nodding again and laughing and agreeing, right, in some form? Oh, I agree. I agree. <laughs> so I agree. But there's no incentive to leave Canberra. You've got the best state school system there. You've got a road system where you, your traffic jam lasts for four minutes, yep. and that's a bad day. And it's a great city to bring kids up for, and that's all great. But there's no incentive to leave, and you saw that when there were proposals to move people outside the city. Uh, you see it with the ABC when the proposals were to relocate the ABC. Now, they did in England when they uh, took That's people right. with the BBC up to Salford. That's right. And the world did not fall apart no. and it still operates. Um, that's why I said it earlier, not tariffs, subsidies. Okay. I'd be happy to subsidise. And, you know, in a way, Canberra's a big country town, so it's, it's pretty much the same issue. Yeah. So, um, I, I mean, my... To be fair, um, Whitlam and Tom, the late, I think he's late, Tom Uren had, uh, from memory, seven growth centres, Albury-Wodonga, Orange, Bathurst, somewhere in South Australia, and everybody laughed at him. We laughed at him in Treasury, but he was on the right track. You know, you you look at places like Wagga Wagga, I went down there to watch the Raiders, the Mighty Raiders play last year, and it's you know it's a, it's a country town, yeah. but Jesus, it's not it's not a prison farm. That's right, and it's not that far from Sydney. No. 
without, you know, breaking the speed limits. You get back. Uh, so I think we've got to rethink that. But this building of high-rise after high-rise, and it's unfair. And uh, I've got five grandchildren. The thought of that, admittedly, they're living the life of Riley, the two on the farm, but the thought of them being in these small apartments, Terrible. you just wonder what that's going to produce. I agree. Here endeth the lesson. If this coronavirus sticks around longer and the market still stays low, what are your thoughts regarding government supporting industry? Well, if it happens, we're going to have to think an in, about an entirely different model. Um, or you're just going to have greater government intervention and um, you'll have to think about, I'm not in favour of government ownership of businesses, but in the nth degree, you may have to consider it as a temporary measure. And we've got the example, I lived through it in the UK, um, HSBC was owned by the government. Um, That's right, yeah. NatWest, uh, Royal Bank of Scotland, was owned 86%. It's not the end of the world, uh, but it's all about incentives and how you run it. But uh, we'll have to think about a new model. I uh, I did a um, board meeting by uh, Microsoft Teams this morning, yep. and I had to put the books there to put up to the right height. And I pulled one of the books out of the study, and it was The New Industrial State by J.K. Galbraith, which I'd won as a prize in 1968. Wow. And he talked about it, and it's scary. I thought it was scary, but there'll have to come a time. But as long as if we go into those new models, we don't go into it as a model for all time. We see it as a temporary measure, and uh, that's going to be difficult. And uh, that's why I think you've got to have the – and, uh, you know, I've been delighted to see a number of Labor Party uh, spokesmen saying the same – or spokeswomen saying the same thing. Yeah. This will be temporary measures. And um, at the end of the day, the thing that drives, I think, most people is a motivation to do better, to do better for their families. Now, the problem with public sector is the only way you can be rewarded is by your title – or your uh, rank. Mm. I can only win if you lose. And that's the great thing about the private sector. You can all do better and you can share in the biggie cake. And that to me, I th as long as that's the driving force, I think we can, we can get through. But if we have another round of it, it's going to be tough. And um, I just hope that, that, you know, and there's so many models about how to, how to hit it, I, I don't know. I've been looking um, back to my first year statistics about the flattening of the curve yep. and, you know, pray to God that uh, we're on the right track. John, if you were to uh, look back at that young bloke that the old man had signed you up for and what he falsified those documents um, and he walks into his first career in Treasury, what advice would you give him now looking back all those years? I think um, I would have... Uh, mortgaged uh, everything I had to go to Nuffield College because um, I, I I loved it, you know, just going up to Oxford. Um, but most importantly, uh, as I was a lousy rugby player, I was too slow. I was very fit, but I was too slow. Having seen the playing fields at uh, Oxford, which were invariably muddy, I think I would have done all right. 
they wouldn't have, you know, being the slowest guy in the team in Australia wouldn't have mattered as much over there because all the fat guys would have been pretty slow. Uh, I'm being a bit silly. Um, that's more about taking a risk. But uh, the rest of the time, I, I wouldn't have changed much about my life. I uh, I think I left the public service. I was 40, uh, 41, 42, which is just about the right time. And I was lucky enough to fall in with a good bunch of blokes. And um, I've led a very lucky life and I'm very grateful to it. And that's why when I, coming back to it, uh, when I see blokes without an arm or half a face who don't complain, yeah. tears come to my eyes because I've been so lucky. And that's why I went back to Treasury. That's why uh, Tony Abbott taught me into it. And on that, John, I... I can't ask for more. It's been a terrific conversation. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, mate. You've been listening to No Limitations. <laughs>